Okay, let's pray. So we are in Luke chapter 5, verses uh, 27 through uh, the end of the chapter. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for this time that we have to, to gather together uh, to, to worship you to, through uh, singing, through learning from the scriptures, from fellowshipping with one another. We ask, Lord, that you would bless our time with each other now. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see what is said in uh, today's section, the calling of Matthew. We pray, Father, uh, that your spirit would uh, just lead us and guide us, Lord. Show us um, what happened and how it applies to our life. Father, I pray that you would help us um, just to, to see and to learn uh, from, from the example of Matthew, this tax collector, this man who was despised and how you saw into his heart and that you called him and that he, he left everything and followed you. And so we pray that you would help us um, to understand the calling that you've placed on our life to, uh, to lay down our lives and to give them to you, Lord, and that we would walk with you faithfully all the days of our life. Uh, for those here or listening that may not understand um, or aren't there yet to, to trust in you. Father, I pray that you would help them uh, to move closer to you, that they would gain greater understanding of the gospel and this gift that you've uh, offered to us. Uh, we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After that, he went out, and he noticed a tax collector named Levi, that's Matthew, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and he got up and he began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception or a party for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well, who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will tear the new, and the piece from the old will not match the old. And no one puts new wine on old wineskins, new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins and no one after drinking old wine wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We ask you that you would lead us now and it's in Christ's good name we pray. All right, as we make our way through uh, the Gospel of Luke, I'm just kind of looking at my notes here in my Bible. I didn't see something before, and I just want to make sure, yeah. Um, 
we see sort of this hopscotch of Luke sort of touching on individuals' lives. We start sort of the section with, with Peter. Um, they're out, uh, Jesus is teaching. Jesus tells Peter to put out the boat. They'd been fishing all night long. Um, they didn't catch anything. Then Jesus says, why don't you just go ahead and put the boat out? I know you've just cleaned your nets, but just, just, just you know, just do it for me. And so Peter does it. They catch this huge, like, net of fish, so much so that the nets are breaking, the boats are sinking, all of the guys have to help uh, to get the fish up. And in this moment, Peter, sort of in who he is, it bubbles up to the surface and he recognizes that he's a sinner, that Jesus is God and that he's holy and he's righteous and they have nothing to do with each other. And we see this depart from me. And yet Jesus tells Peter, Peter, follow me. I'm gonna make you fishers of men, a fisher of men. And then we're introduced to the leper who comes to Jesus. This leper understands his problem. Not that it's just a rash on his skin that he's asking for healing. He comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I need you to make me clean. I need you to make me whole. Uh, I need you to restore uh, what is wrong with me. They understood uh, leprosy to be something of, of a sinful nature, that it was just a symptom of something that was going on on the inside. And so Jesus says, I'm willing. He makes him clean. The guy goes through all the... Uh, the process. From that story, Jesus is teaching in this house. The crowds are there. There's a paralytic man or a paraly yeah, para paralyzed man, paralytic, same thing. Um, he is trying to get there from his friends. They can't get there, so they go up to the roof. They, they bust a hole in the roof, and they lower the guys down. Jesus says, your sins are, are forgiven. And the Pharisees have a big uproar, and Jesus is like, well, what's, what's easier to do, to say your sins are forgiven or to tell a guy who's paralyzed to get up and walk? They didn't answer. Jesus says, get up and walk. And in doing this, he demonstrates who he is and that he has the capacity and authority to forgive sins. And so the guy gets up, he walks away. And today we turn our attention to another man, this man, Levi, that we would know as Matthew. He's the author of the gospel of Matthew. Uh, he's a tax collector. Uh, a, a, a wretched man that would have been despised by the people. And so we, we read in verse 27, after that, the paralytic man, he, Jesus went out and he looked at a tax, collect, tax collector. He went out and looked at a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he goes out he notices this tax collector. And the first thing we have to sort of address is like, what was a tax collector? It's a good time of the year to do this. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's tax season. And so tax seasons uh, during this day, the way it worked is sort of Rome owned all of the land. So R Rome was in control of everything. And then the various geographic regions of the land, it was sort of like a, like a franchise is the best way I could um, I, I could describe it. There would be different regions. And, and Rome would say, okay, if you want to be the tax man for this region, it's going to cost you this much. And so this guy, Matthew, was one of the tax collectors that had a piece of the parcel of Galilee. And so he would sort of, I don't know what the numbers are, but let's just say uh, his franchise fees every year or every month, however they did it, to Rome, say, just for simple math, would be like, you got to pay $1,000 a month in order to work this section of land. He would pay his money, and then he basically 
he had the authority of Rome to collect taxes, but it wasn't just like you get your tax bill and you owe a, you know, X amount of dollars for whatever the taxes were due. Basically, whatever Levi could milk out of you, that's what he got. And so he could, he could make a ton of money. Some of these guys were powerful and corrupt. And, and so they basically just, they harvested whatever they could from the people. And as a result, they were despised and they were hated by individuals. Like you, could, you would be disowned by your family. In many of the cases, especially in the context of, of Israel, uh, the ones that were Jewish tax collectors, they were viewed as traitors to the state of Rome. And uh, it's funny, I think in the Mishnah, like or one of the Jewish writings, they said that uh, the, the rabbi sort of deemed it acceptable uh, that, that it was okay to lie to the tax man. <laughs> like it was, they would, they would absolve that, that crime of lying to the tax man. And so Galilee was this very... Um, profitable area for taxmen because if you wanted to go up to Damascus, the Syria region, there was a major highway kind of that went through a highway, our terminology. There was a major path that you could walk through. And, and so it was sort of a lot of people came and went and so they could harvest a lot of money. And so uh, here we have these tax guys, they're doing what they do. Uh, they've already entered our story. If you remember back in, in Luke chapter three, um, I was gone. I forget who was preaching this one at this time, but John the Baptist is at the, the River Jordan and, and the crowds are coming to him, asking him questions like, what about us? What should we do? Some soldiers came to him and said, well, what about us? What should we do? And then there were also some, some tax collectors and they came to be baptized. And they said, hey, John, now that we've been baptized, like, what should we do? How do we live our lives now? Do we have to walk away from our professions? Do we need, like, what, what is it that we have to do? And John tells them, collect no more than you've been ordered to. And so basically, if, if you are given a certain amount, just charge them that much. Don't uh, use your power to collect more. And so this setting in Galilee, this is a small, tiny little town. Everybody that was there, they knew Levi. So certainly, just from the context, from knowing history, the disciples, so far the ones that we've been introduced to are small business owners, right? They're fishermen. In today's context, I'm not going to show a raise of hands, but like small business owners are not a big fan of the IRS. You can give an amen if you want to, but it's like, uh, like it's like, I can really, I can hear the small business owners and the tone of their voice. Like, so you have a bunch of small business owners that are following after Jesus. And now Matthew, who they know, probably the guy that's like milking them for everything that they, they have, he's about to, to join the scene. And so this is going to be a very uncomfortable relationship within the disciples. And so today we're going to watch like, we're going to watch one clip now, then we're going to continue, and then we're going to show another clip now. And so what we're going to watch now, the lights are going to go off. It's a three-minute clip, and it's from The Chosen of the Calling of Matthew. And I really like how they did it because towards the end of it, you get kind of the, the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, like, let me, this, this, this is Levi. Like, like, let's pick a different guy. Like, so we'll dim the lights, and we'll watch this, and we'll get back to it. 
Okay, so it's a good little it's a good little clip. I liked a couple of things. I mean, I liked that it really like highlighted the problems that the disciples would have with this tax collector joining them. And I think that there's kind of a lesson that Christianity is a lot of like this, that we sort of, a lot of us are friends, that we wouldn't be friends apart from Christ if we were out in the world. And yet here we are united through Christ. And I thought it was funny. He's like, hey, what's a tablet for? He's like, oh, you might find a use for it. He does write the gospel of Matthew. Um, and so um, it's good. I mean, so we're, now we're going to kind of back up. Let me look at the text here. So after that, he went out and he looked at a tax collector. So we've reviewed a tax collector. I don't think we need a whole lot of explanation on like a tax collector not being liked. So the tax collector wasn't liked. They were not, they didn't, they were, they were not in, people didn't like them. I can just leave it at that, I think. Um, yeah, no, I, I see Brandon and I think somebody, what was that one? We did the thankful game and somebody was thankful for their, yeah, you were thankful for taxes. Now it's like, I'm having all these flashbacks of that one. You know, oh, that was a fun, thankful game. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's my brain. You guys are there. <laughs> no, there's one person I know who's thankful for taxes, and it's our, our boy Mike over here, <laughs> the IRS. Okay, so I can't say nobody's thankful for them. Like, so there's the vast majority of people do not like the IRS, and so I don't need to expand it. Um, after that, they went out and, they, and looked at a tax collector named Levi uh, sitting at the tax office. And so this word looked, it's the, in, in the Greek, it's actually like this really, really powerful word. Um, so Jesus is going by and it's not like he just like glances and sees a tax collector. The, 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 the idea is that he walked by, he sees Matthew and you could translate this word uh, uh, to look at as to, to, to behold him or to perceive him. It was something like Jesus, as he looked at Matthew, he, he could see be, below the surface level. Like he saw the man, his character, his nature, what he was longing for. Um, whereas the rest of us sort of, we look at the external. I mean, we're humans. It's the best we can do. Even if you're trying to not be like, superficial and you want to look at the person for who they are and you don't want to make judgments, our nature is we, we start with the external and then we have to sort of build and go to, to what's underneath the surface. And then we kind of do it sort of with hesitation until we can build some trust. Jesus has the capacity to look at each one of us and to go beyond the skin level. Like we can fool other people, but we can't fool God. And so here, Jesus, as he comes and he approaches, this language is that when he looks at Matthew, this guy who the disciples would be like scowling at, or maybe they don't even want to make eye contact, like oh, he's going to tax me if I look at him. I don't want to like, you know, like we, Jesus is looking at him and he's deep, he's looking at him, he's beholding him, he's perceiving him, he's seeing what, what is underneath the surface. And so the next clip we're going to watch is from a, it's, I think it's from a series. I don't even know where it came from. I, it was like a TV show, a TV show, I think. It was called The Son of God. And I think whenever the, the story of the gospel is sort of put into film or to TV, you have to take artistic license. Um, and be, because you're reliving, like you're pretending, it's all artistic license. And, and the, I thought that the clip of The Son of God 
of this scene of the calling of Matthew, what they do just as a Bible teacher to let you know what's happening here, just to kind of piece it together so you know the artistic license, is what they've done in the calling of Matthew. They have, they've taken this sort of idea that when Jesus looked at Matthew, he knew who he was. And then what they do is they take a parable that Jesus shared. And you'll know the parable once you see it, but it, he shares he, he basically starts telling about this parable, but he doesn't tell it in parable form. He tells it as a story. And then by the time it gets to the part concerning the tax collector, you'll see that Matthew's there with tears in his eyes, sort of mouthing the words of the prayer that he prayed. And Jesus is kind of showing that this is who it is. And I thought they did a really uh, powerful job on this verse, kind of showing that when it says that Jesus looked at him, that this is kind of what was happening. So we'll dim the lights and we'll watch this three-minute clip. Sorry we didn't bring popcorn today, but... Okay. So that one obviously highlights like another angle, and I thought it was really, really good that he, when he looks at Matthew, he sees him from the, the inside. He takes this parable from another part of the, the Gospels, and they use it to sort of highlight what's going on in Matthew's heart. And so we're told that after Jesus says to him, you know, come follow me, that he got up and he follows him. He left, he left everything behind and he began following him. And so it's, it's interesting to me that, that these guys so far, as, as far as it relates to the previous disciples, um, you know, he didn't find them at some like, spiritual retreat or religious service. He felt them at their vocations. <laughs> like, like the guys are fishing and that's where he calls the first part of the disciples. Now he sees Matthew at his, at his place of vocation and he calls him. And they, they acknowledge, or they understand at least, maybe not acknowledge, they acknowledge, but they understand sort of what's on the table here. And and they basically stand up and they walk away. We're told that they sort of left everything, what, what, whatever that means. Um, like the closed up shop for the day. Matthew, it seems like he was not a tax collector after this. Peter still had his fishing business. And later he, you would see him kind of go back for a little bit at least. Um, but they walk away. In Peter's case, they like walk away from this huge harvest of fish. We have no idea if they stole those fish. They used them to feed the people. The story doesn't tell us. Here, it, the, the picture's almost that there's like money still on the table that he's collected and he walks away. He departs from everything and everything that he has is now is Jesus's. And I think that this is a, there's a lesson here for us that when Jesus calls us, when he asks us to follow him, when he asks us to give us our, him our lives, it's not that he wants to be sort of a, you know, when I was a kid, I don't think they do them anymore. It's probably not socially correct, but, uh, but you know, the little like rabbit's foot that were like col colored, different colors. Like I remember as a kid walking around with like a real rabbit's foot, like colored purple or whatever, you know, and you just rub it for good luck. And a lot of people I think come to Jesus, like he's just this like good luck charm that you add into your collection of good luck charms. Um, or we come to Jesus sort of like fire insurance that it's like, oh, I, have, I trusted in Christ. And so when I die, I'm not gonna go to hell so I'm good. But that's not what the Bible describes as calling it. It's, it's that when Jesus comes to us, 
that he wants all of us. He has given everything so that we might have a relationship with him. And it's a radical call of us surrendering everything and walking after him. That's beautiful. I mean, <laughs> it happens. Um, it was good timing. Um, and so we see, we see Jesus come to Matthew. We see that uh, Jesus comes to Matthew. He calls him. He follows him. And between verse 28 and verse 29, it's like there's this huge line in this, the storyline of Matthew's life. Previous to verse 29, Matthew lived for himself. He was in it to, to gain money and resources and to take advantage of whoever he could take advantage of to make a, a living and to increase his personal wealth, his personal comfort. And then in verse 29, everything shifts. He then moves on to using his resources, his gifts, his talents. Uh, they're at the disposal of Jesus. Um, like I love the first clip when they're like, uh, hey, we're going to a dinner party. So he's like, well, I'm not really welcome there. Like I'm not... Like, I'm not, I'm not liked and accepted by the community. And so I can't, and they're like, oh, no, no, it's okay, you're hosting. It's like, oh, okay, you know, like, and so verse 29, and Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a large crowd of tax collectors. So he has all of his buddies. These are the people who would hang out with him and other people. And we don't know who the other people are, but it makes you wonder who these other people are. Um, I don't get the impression that the other people were necessarily like good Sunday school kids. Um, these seem to be based on how the Pharisees and scribes are going to react. These are sort of the outcasts of society, those who were rejected by society. They're now at Matthew's house. There's a big, huge banquet. They're sharing a meal together. Jesus with the disciples are there with them. It's, it's, it's awesome. You have Matthew, his old life for himself. Now he's hosting this party for Jesus and inviting all of his friends and all the people using his resources for the kingdom of God. And I do think that this is like a great example for us about how um, we can use our lives and offer our lives and our resources for the Lord. It can be as simple as having somebody over to your house for a meal. So a huge round of applause for all, no, no, no little round of applause, but for the people that are hosting dinner eights, like it's not, it's not necessarily easy. Like I heard one group, I've heard from Heidi that they're having, uh, it's not dinner eights, they're having dinner 28s. And so like they're having this big crowd. And, and so it's like to, to bring people in, maybe you just have like one person over to your house. Maybe you have two people, but, but using your home as a place of hospitality and loving on people or just giving of yourself. Like I joke about like donut Sundays because I really don't want the leftover donuts because I don't have the gift of, of a discipline for donuts. Um, but there's something about you instead of bolting, you going out there and having a donut or half a donut or just standing there um, and giving of yourself to participate with the body of Christ. That's a way that you can surrender your life to him and say, Lord, everything I have is yours. Like, let, let me be used by you. We're told in the scriptures that each one of us in Christ, that we're a part of the body of Christ and the body needs you to participate and to be involved and to use whoever you are and however you're gifted for the sake of his glory. And so we, we see this in Matthew's life. 
And in verse 30, the problem started. Now the party has begun. They're there. Apparently, it was a very uh, open door party. It wasn't exclusive by any means. Because the Pharisees and their scribes are there. And we see that they began in verse 30. In this scene, the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling to his disciples, not to Jesus, to his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And so you could read this, uh, like if you just go from verse 32 or yeah, 32 to verse 33, you can kind of miss like, the Pharisees are asking the disciples, like the students, why are you guys hanging out with uh, tax collectors and sinners? And I could see the, the disciples going, that's a really good question. We're a little bit uncomfortable with this ourselves. Like, I don't know why we're here. He, uh, like if we go to the first clip about how Peter reacted to the calling of Matthew, it's like, ah, like, Jesus, you just go inside. We'll, 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 we got to go clean up our boats. We'll go do that or we'll do something. Just, we'll catch up with you later. But so I imagine that while the, the Pharisees and the scribes are highlighted here, that they're grumbling against the disciples about uh, fellowshipping communing, eating, and drinking with the tax collectors and sinners, that they're a bit uncomfortable also because they were raised in the religious system. And the religious system said that a good Jewish person doesn't allow their life to commingle with that type of person, however you define that type of person. And in verse 31, Jesus just like intervenes. It's almost like he's protecting his disciples, like saying, why are you talking to them? Why aren't you asking the rabbi? Why aren't you coming to me? Um, earlier in my note, if we go ahead a couple pages in the Bible in Luke, if you go over to Luke chapter 7, um, in verse 33, Jesus sort of addresses later a little bit of like the criticism and the inconsistency of the Pharisees and scribes. And he says over in Luke chapter 7, verse 33, for the for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. So on one end of the spectrum, John the Baptist, as he came in, he was kind of like the wild card. He had the long hair, the burlap sack. He was out in the wilderness. He didn't like consume alcohol. He didn't uh, eat the normal things. He didn't exactly operate the way the Jewish system did, but he was closer to the Jewish system and when the Jewish system saw John the Baptist, they said, he has a demon. So the way he's doing it is incorrect. And then in verse 34, Jesus says about himself, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so this is going to be a point of criticism that Jesus has faced, that he faces throughout his earthly ministry. And it begins right here. And instead of letting the, the disciples sort of like hammer out some sort of guess about why they're there, um, I'm not sure that they even understand why they're at a tax collector's house and why they're with the quote unquote sinners. Like these are like good Jewish boys and they're here and they're like, this is a house we try to avoid. Or they're looking around going, man, look at all this fine China. That was my taxes that paid for this stuff, you know, like, like they, they could be angry that they're there, that they're angry at seeing behind the scenes of how Matthew lived. And so Jesus intervenes and he answers and he says to them, the Pharisees and the scribes, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, 
but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. And it'd be very easy for them to think, well, I'm, I, we are righteous by our rules and by the things that we've established, the boundaries that we've put in place, we are the righteous people. And so we don't need a physician, but I don't think that that's what Jesus is saying. Is that I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but to sinners. And then I almost hear him say, it's not written here, but it's like, but who is the righteous man? Who, in other places, we hear Jesus saying, who is good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except for the Father in heaven. And so you rightly call me good because I am deity. And so he's not, he's not saying to the Pharisees and scribes that they're righteous. They would probably understand it that way because that's how they viewed themselves. But Jesus is like, I'm here for sinners. And all of y'all are sinners. So like, whether I'm in Matthew's house or I'm in the Pharisees' home, I am with sinners. And he said, I am here to call you to repentance so that you could get right with God, so that you could be forgiven of your sins and experience true holiness and righteousness found through my blood. And so they said to him, the disciples, so they're going to kind of move on. And they're going to start comparing various disciples in the different groups. So he says the disciples of John, so we're talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist had his own followings as you uh, go through the gospels and you see the unfolding of the story. Um, even into like Acts, the, as, after like the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, like years later, there would still be disciples of John the Baptist who are still sort of living their life going, uh, what happened with this Jesus guy? Like, I didn't hear about that. Like, and so there's news still spreading. So there was these very distinct groups. And so they, they pointed out like, hey, the disciples of, of John the Baptist, they often fast and offer prayers. Now these fasts, it was like a weekly thing. I think it was like Tuesdays and Thursdays, they would go to the market, they would dress, uh, don't, get, don't quote me on the days, but it was like a couple days of the week, they would go out there, there were set days, they would, they would fast, they would make it very clear for the world to see that they were, they were not eating and they were separating themselves from the world. And so they were offering these, these prayers, um, they fast and offer prayers. Um, the disciples of the Pharisees are like, well, our guys do this too. Like, this is very normal for us. When we see John the Baptist and his disciples, their life and how they are functioning looks a lot like ours. And so we understand there's some distinctions, but it doesn't look that different for us or not enough that it is offensive to us. But then he says, but yours, they eat and they drink. And so they're not fasting weekly. Like it was, it was a, enough culturally, I, I believe that because everybody sort of had their days where they fasted and didn't fast, that here the disciples of Jesus and those who are following Jesus on the days that they were fasting, suddenly they're not fasting. And everybody's seeing, why are you not fasting? You're not doing your prayers. You're not going through sort of the religious uh, works and, and uh, methods that you're supposed to be following day in and day out. And so Jesus answered them in verse 34, and he said, you cannot make the attendance of the groom fast while the groom is with you, can you? But the days will come and when the groom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And he says basically like, hey, when there's a wedding and it's like the bride and groom are there and it's like the, the day or the week of celebration and everybody's like festive and merry, like why, why would they be sad in that moment? And he was saying that the moment is here, that the bride, the, 
the, the, the, the bridegroom, the Messiah, is, is there to receive what would become his church. And so this was a time of like celebration and joy and happiness. So why in the world would they be fasting now when their Messiah and your Messiah is present with you now? And he's saying a day will come and he's alluding to his death, burial, and resurrection and his ascension into heaven when Christ, his physical uh, nature would be taken away from them and from us, that in those days, they're gonna have, they're gonna have sorrow. They're gonna have agony. They're, they're going to be fasting and they're going to be praying for direction. All you have to do is read the first couple pages of, of, of Acts to see this unfolding. And then he shifts and he says in verse 36, he goes and he tells a parable. He said, no one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear down the new and the patch from the new garment will not match the old and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out. Then the skins will be ruined. But, the new, but, the new, but new wine must be poured into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants new, for he says the old is fine. So basically what's happening here, they're asking questions about these changes. You can kind of research and dig about wineskins and how you did patches and how you did all this stuff. But basically he's saying, you guys are very comfortable with the way things have been going. You're content. You have your system. You know what to expect. You know how to go about your routine. And so, so you're just comfortable with this. And Jesus is saying the Messiah isn't coming to sort of do like a little remodel in your kitchen. Like, oh yeah, you're, you know, your floor tile's a little uh, dirty and there's some chips. So why don't we go ahead and just do that? And then we'll just, yeah, it looks good from there. Jesus is saying like, no, no, no. The Messiah is doing a total teardown. Like we're taking this down to the, down to the concrete and then we're gonna jackhammer up the concrete and then we're gonna start totally fresh. Something new is happening in their midst and they are not able to wrap their minds around this. Okay, we're gonna take communion. Uh, the Lord's Supper we're gonna celebrate today and sort of looking at this passage, I think some of the things as we head into the Lord's Supper, we have to remember that uh, like Matthew, he's calling each, each one of us into this relationship with him. And, and I know a lot of you and I know your relationship with Christ. I know that you have responded to his invitation to receive him as your savior. There's some of you I, I don't know. And certainly like if people are listening on, on like online, I, I for sure don't know where they stand. But for every single person that's alive, that's here like on earth now, Jesus is inviting them to come and to follow him and to receive their gift. This is, this is the most important thing. The gospel tells us that all of us have been separated from God because of our sin. And because of our sin, because of our sin nature, it's impossible for us to have fellowship with God. But the gospel continues and tells us that Jesus stepped out of heaven, came to earth, took on the form of a man. He lived a perfect life. He observed the law. He was without sin. And ultimately, he went to the cross, not for any sin that he committed, not for any wrong that he had done, but take on the wrath that was due us, the penalty that was due us, and he was our substitute. And he died on the cross. He absorbed the wrath of God fully, completely, once and for all. He went to the grave. He rose on the third day. And then the message is, you can receive this 
or you can reject it. Your default is rejecting it. But by receiving, it's simply believing. That moment when you think to yourself in your heart, in your mind, that, you know what? I am a sinner. I am in need. I think of that, that picture of Matthew in that video. His, te- his tears are streaming down his face saying, I am in desperate need of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, okay, clean up your life. Let's, let's try to go a week without swearing or let's try to, uh, let's, fill in the blank of whatever you think that you need to clean up in order to get right with God. He's saying, just come to me, receive the gift. I paid for it in full. There's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. It's simply believe. But critics of grace, I I just, well, I'm not going to tell, I don't have time to tell the story what I just read. But there are many outside of evangelical Christianity who will then say that this whole idea of, of, of the gospel of grace is like easy believism and, and it's just simply like certainly you have to do, like God helps those who help themselves and you have to do these things if you want to, like it's nice that Jesus went to the cross and all, but like there's still like 20% or 10% or 1% or like half, like there's a smidge that you have to do in order to bridge the gap. And that's such a false thinking. Jesus paid it all. We come to him by faith. But then when you receive this gift, it's like it's so overwhelming. We, we don't respond to him. We don't offer our lives to try to earn salvation. We offer our lives and we give of ourselves and, and we offer everything that we have, not to, not to receive, but because we have received. And we recognize that he gave us everything. This is just reasonable. He is our God. He's our provider. He cares for us. He gives and he takes away. So it's foolish to think that you can like withhold anything from him. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is a time for us to sort of uh, come back to the basics. I always think of the story about, uh, I think it's Vince Lombardi. Is that his name? The Green Bay Packers guy. Like I'm looking at my football guy, but he's like the, from way back when, way, like, and and like, well, he's just like famous for like at the beginning of, of, of football season with these like world famous football players. And he would come out with a football and he'd be like, gentlemen, this is a football. And it's like, who are you telling me that I was football? We're like advanced. And it's like, no, 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 gentlemen, this is a football. Let's start with the basics. And I think that Jesus built this sort of like, this is the football. It's a picture for us. And so when we get the little, like, you know, like they always taste stale to me, but I think that's just how they make them because they don't have like whatever in it. There's no gluten and there's no, like everything I love, like gluten and the stuff that like, and the other stuff that makes them rise, yeast, you know, and, but it, the cracker is like this, this broken cracker to, to, to remind us that Jesus's body was broken for us, that he was a substitute for us. We're to remember what he did. And the juice is a reminder of this eternal covenant that we have in his blood, which is significant in that this isn't like the Old Testament where once a year you had to go slaughter something to remind you. that This is that we take this to remember that there was a sacrifice once and for all for us and that Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, his blood that was shed, it was good indefinitely for us. It was a once and for all. And that we're reminded that we're to proclaim his death, burial, and resurrection. And I'm going to review all this stuff in a couple minutes. 
But the, guy, the team is going to come forward and they're going to pass out the elements. And the first thing we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is that when we take communion, this is our time to sort of to, to meet with God, to examine our hearts and to confess sin that is either that you're separated from. Like if you're not a believer, there's no point in taking communion. And if you're not a believer now, but you have all of a sudden, like in the last, like right now, as I'm speaking, you've come to believe, then you can take communion. There's sin as believers that, that hinders our relationship with God. It doesn't, um, it doesn't make us not saved. It just hinders our relationship. And so confession is this time where we can confess to God our sin, to show him the things that, like, that, we are, that are holding us back. Thank you. And, and we're told that he forgives us, that he cleanses us, and that he makes us new. So just take this time as the elements are going around to, to spend a couple of minutes with God.
1 Corinthians 11.23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, also after supper, saying, This is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And Father, we do thank you for this time that we have to study your word. We thank you for this picture of Matthew. We thank you for the picture of our Lord Jesus interacting with tax collectors and sinners. For why we might not be tax collectors, we for sure, each and every one of us are sinners. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We have willfully violated your desires of our life, Lord, from our thoughts to our actions, simply our nature. And so, Father, we thank you that you are a God who forgives and a God who restores and a God who uh, deals with us in a way that is um, just really relatable, that, that, that as a Christian, I'm not a sinless person. I am, I am a saved sinner. And I thank you that your word provides a way for me to deal uh, with this part of my life that, as Paul writes in Romans 7, the things that I, I don't want to do, those are the very things that I, I do. And, and so, Father, we thank you that your word tells us that you... <clears throat> just have abundant grace and that we as your children can come before you and confess our sins to you. We can acknowledge them and that you uh, separate them from as far as the east as the west. You, you, you wipe that whiteboard clean. We thank you, Lord, as we hold this cracker and this a little cup of juice in our hands. We're reminded of Jesus's body that was broken for us once and for all, that as he died on that cross, uh, thousands of years before we would enter into existence, that he suffered and died uh, for all of our sins, future at the time, and for us now, looking back at our lives, looking present in our lives, and looking future in our lives. We thank you that through his blood, we can stand secure and confident before you. Father, we pray that you would help us to take our relationship with you seriously. 
We acknowledge that our flesh is strong and the temptation of this world is powerful and it's so easy for us to be led astray. We pray, Father, that you would help us to, to live in a way um, that, that is reasonable before you. We pray, Father, that you would help us to take this commission of proclaiming the Lord's death until he re returns seriously. We pray that we as a church, that we as a people, that we uh, as a community of believers, Lord, would, would hurt uh, for those that don't know you as your Savior as you hurt for them. Lord, help our hearts to become like your hearts. Father, we are just so grateful for how much you love us and how much you care for us. We pray as we take this communion that you would continue to, to grow and to build our relationship with you and this understanding of grace. Lord, help us just to walk with you, Lord, with everything that we have. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen.